This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. If you recall last week, we, uh, we're, we started with inspiration and the authority of Scripture. Uh, Lord willing, tonight we'll get into the authority of Scripture, finish up inspiration, but we're going to cover a couple other topics. Uh, but if you'll recall last week, we went over these separate things, biblical materials, uh, the theories of inspiration, evangelical definition of inspiration, inerrancy of Scripture, and the importance of inerrancy. So tonight, we're going to pick it right up with, we need to consider another word. And that is the word infallible. Infallible. We've been throwing around some words like inerrancy, and uh, now we're going to add to it infallibility. Uh, scholars, theologians, and on the definition of these terms, uh, more specifically, maybe on the application of these terms. Uh, but what do you, I'll just pose the question as we get started, what is the difference between inerrant and infallible? I think you're exactly right. One is without error and one cannot, there can be no error. These words are important, so important, they are actually in our church constitution. I said come back tonight because we're going to pick apart our church constitution. We're really not going to do it like that, but we are going to look at it. Before I get into that, though, um, let me skip here. All right, look at our, our constitution. Our Constitution, Section 2.01, Statement of Faith, says this, The Holy Scriptures, we believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the verbally and plenary-inspired plenary Word of God. The Scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and God-breathed, and therefore are the final authority for faith and life. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the complete and divine revelation of God to man. It goes on to say, the scriptures shall be interpreted according to their normal grammatical historical meaning. Remember that term, if you remember Josh Wagar mentioned that, grammatical historical meaning. And all issues of interpretation and meaning shall be determined by the pastor. That's an interesting, I did not actually realize that until I read it. Um, and so, the King James Version of the Bible shall be the official and only translation used by the church. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. There is some disagreement over the, the use of these words, inerrant and infallible. But you'll see, let me go back, you'll see they're here. We have them in our Constitution, our Statement of Faith, that we say they are inerrant and infallible. So let's look at these two words. Most agree that inerrant is simply to not have any error. It's in the word, right? That's the root of it. Inerrant, not to have any error. The disagreement, though, is over infallible. There's a couple different approaches to this. One would say inerrant is no errors on any topic whatsoever. Infallible is that the Bible has no errors in matters of faith. But there's a problem with that. Some denominations, using this definition of infallibility, 
hold that the historical or scientific details, which may be irrelevant to matters of faith and Christian practice, they may contain errors. But they simultaneously claim that the Bible is an error and that it does not have any errors in what is said. For example, Satan's lie or Joshua and the sun standing still. These are things that um, are couldn't they, you know, the Bible contains, I should say, error in that they'll say there are, you can say it jokingly, I guess, there are error, there are lies in the Bible, right? Well, Satan lied and there's other lies. They're contained in the Bible. Or Joshua and the sun standing still. Uh, that, that, that's not necessarily true that the sun didn't actually stand still. Uh, and so it's not an error in what, what is said. Uh, but, uh, but they said, but people didn't really understand the, the world at that time. And so we'll give them a pass for saying those things, even though that's an error. Uh, what was said was that it stood still. But we know scientifically that the sun actually didn't stand still. So what they're saying is don't trust the Bible for actually science or history. Just only trust it for the, the, the real important matters of faith. That's one approach. Some would say that inerrancy is the Bible contains no errors, but infallibility means the Bible cannot contain error. We get a little closer with this one, but the problem that it cannot contain errors is the concept of infallibility has really, its definition has no relation to errors. But the impossibility of failure, that's what I think, uh, Matt, what you just said is, it's not just it can't contain errors, but infallibility, infallibility actually means it is impossible to be an error or impossible to fail. So to just say that the Bible cannot contain errors is too weak of a definition. This application would say something like this. If you were to say that the Bible cannot contain errors, it would say something like this. Scripture is not to be understood as making scientific affirmations. Again, we go back to that, particularly in the realms of cosmology, anatomy, and physiology, uh, that it just, we don't understand it in that way, uh, and so uh, just we just leave it alone. Or here's the third way of approaching it. Inerrancy does not contain error. Again, we use that same definition, but infallibility is the impossibility of being wrong. I want you to think about that. Infallibility as the impossibility of being wrong. I'm going to go back here and show you a statement. I put it a little too early in our slides, but I'll show you this. We're going to look at this statement throughout the evening. Not this specific statement, but the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, the whole thing. Uh, we're going to reference this Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. In that, they say inerrancy, I'm sorry, infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. And we deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive things, exclusive of, assert of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypothesis hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. What the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, you may ask, well, why do you bring this up? 
The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was a written statement of belief that was formulated in 1978. It was formed by more than 200 evangelical leaders at a conference convened by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy and held in Chicago in October of 1978. The statement was designed to defend the position of biblical inerrancy against a trend towards liberal conceptions of Scripture. In 1978, if you think of church history, 1978, just prior to that, the Southern Baptist Convention, I'll specifically talk about them, was in turmoil. It was becoming very liberal. Uh, and uh, the seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention were producing pastors that uh, deny, were beginning to deny, or they had been for a while, inerrancy and infallibility. They were denying the scriptures. The Southern Baptist Convention, I believe, is probably one of the only denominations that has historically gone down a very left-leaning path and then righted itself. It's pretty amazing how it did it. In 1979, the churches fed up with this, said, we're going to send messengers to the convention, and we are going to put in there someone who is a biblical inerrantist, someone who believes in infallibility. And so I think it was in 1979, they elected a man named Adrian Rogers. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. He's often on the radio. Uh, uh, his, he's passed away a few years ago. He pastored a church in Memphis, Tennessee, Bellevue Baptist Church. At one time in its heyday, ran around 20,000 members. Uh, it, was, it was big. Don't worry, not all those were attending every Sunday. Only about 14,000 came on any given Sunday. So uh, a relatively small church. But Adrian Rogers, they went in there and, and, and just they cleaned house. Uh, Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Southeastern Theological in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, Southwest Theological in, uh, in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. All these schools, they went in and they started ridding them of professors who, who, would, who were denying inerrancy and decided we are going to take this stand. We're going to take the, the convention back. And part of it was this Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And I give you all that history, not because we're going to laud the Southern Baptists say, oh, look what they did, that's the way. I think what they produce, though, in the Chicago Statement is an excellent definition of inerrancy. And it's one that we would do well to understand and use. And throughout the evening, we'll look at this statement and we'll reference it. We can have inerrancy without infallibility, but we cannot have, the statement is saying, we cannot have infallibility without inerrancy. The best way to say it is not that it is inerrant and infallible, the Bible, but rather that if the Bible is inerrant, or but that it is inerrant because it is infallible. In other words, the Bible has no error it's not, it is, it is without error and it cannot. It is without error because God cannot lie. It's inerrant because it is infallible. So let's look at some reasons then for holding to biblical inerrancy. What are some reasons why? I want, I hope this evening that you'll leave here saying, I have a Bible that has no air in it, and it's impossible for it to have air in it. 
Now that's a tall order because uh, you might, your mind might be spinning and thinking, going down rabbit holes of some other questions that that'll bring up and those will be fair questions. We'll get to them in a bit. But let's look at some reasons why we hold to biblical inerrancy. Well, as we've looked at throughout this process, it's always good to go back to what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible claims through its own self-witness Though we'll never see the term in Scripture, it is strongly implied throughout the biblical materials. You're not going to see the word inerrancy in the Scripture. But guess what? You won't find the word Trinity in the Scripture. You won't find the word rapture in the Scripture. You won't find the words hypostatic union. You say, well... I'm thankful that's not in the scripture. I don't even know what that means. That means God was 100% God and 100% man. You won't find that term that we'd use to describe that in the scripture, but you'll see those teachings are there. And we can see the strong implication of these words in, or these terms in the scripture. So what does the Bible have to say about itself? All scripture is what? Given by inspiration. It is God-breathed. You say, well, that just says it's inspired. We'll get to why that implies inerrancy. Of course, 2 Peter 1.20, we looked at this last week. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Numbers 23.19, listen to this, it gets even more pointed. God is not a man that he should lie. Okay, so we built that. Scripture is given by inspiration. God breathed. Men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, if God is speaking, if God is giving this God-breathed word, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, the strength of Israel will not lie. Titus 1, 2, God that cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18, in which it was impossible for God to lie. If God is going to breathe something out, he cannot. He cannot give error. He is infallible. There's an impossibility to, have, to be in error. If it is impossible for God to lie, we can safely also claim the word of God is infallible. It's an impossibility for error. So we see the scripture self-witness. We also see the history of the Christian church. The Christian church historically has affirmed the idea of inerrancy. Though inerrancy of scripture has become a battleground of the 20th century, it's not always been this way. There is little doubt that the Christian, ch Christian church has historically affirmed the idea of inerrancy and infallibility. For example, Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome said this, You are contentious, brethren, and zealous for the things which lead to salvation. You have studied the Holy Scriptures, which are true, and given by the Holy Spirit. You know that nothing unjust or counterfeit is written in them. This was in the first century. Irenaeus from Greece, he said, Scripture is divine and perfect. 
Augustine of Hippo. I believe, he said, most firmly that no one, no one of these authors has erred in any respect in writing. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. Augustine said, if there's a problem, it's not with the scripture, it's with me. Well, these guys lived a long time ago. But even as recently as 1962, the Catholic Church at the Second Vatican Council said this, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or, or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted to wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. That's a pretty strong straight statement. And this is the Second Vatican Council, 1962. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, used the word infallible to describe the scriptures. In his sermon on the means of grace, here's what Wesley said. The same truth, I'm quoting here, the same truth, namely that this is the great means God has ordained for conveying his manifold grace to man is delivered in the fullest manner that can be conceived. In the words which immediately follow, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Consequently, all scripture, here's what he said, is infallibly true and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, to the end that God, the man of God, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Lutheran formula of Concord, which is the Lutheran statement of faith established in 1577. It was signed by three electors of the Holy Roman Empire, 20 dukes and princes, 24 counts, four barons, 35 free, 35 free imperial cities, and over 8,000 pastors. This constituted two-thirds of the Lutheran church in Germany in, 15, in the 1500s. Every clergyman in the electorate of Saxony had to either subscribe or write his objections with respect to the formula of Concord. They even circulated a rhyme at the time. Write, dear sir, write that ye might remain at the parish. Which you say, that doesn't sound like a cool rhyme. But if I would say it in German, Schreik lieber higher stripe, das it would be much, it's much cooler. All right? And you got to say it angry. All right? And uh, in German. <laughs> but they said at this council, they said this about the Bible. The Bible was God's. This is the Lutheran statement of faith, still held to by the Missouri Synod Lutherans at least. The Bible was God's pure, infallible, unalterable word of God. John Calvin. John Calvin wrote, wrote, th wrote this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that the scriptures have come down to us from the very mouth of God. Benjamin Beckenridge Warfield, or known as B.B. Warfield, a professor at Princeton Seminary from 1887 to 1921, he taught his students that the scriptures were verbal, plenary, without mixture of error. B.B. Warfield served as the last principal of Princeton Theological Seminary. Some conservative Presbyterians consider him to be the last of the great Princeton theologians before the split in 1929 that formed West Westminster Theological Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He said 
that it was without error. Timothy Dwight at Yale. He said this in the 1970s or 1790s. The scriptures were absolutely free from errors. So Yale, Princeton, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Methodists, the Baptists have all held that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. And not only have we been saying this for years, even liberal theologians have said things. Cursop Lake, an English modernist theologian who also taught church history at Harvard and Union Theological Seminary in the 1920s and 30s, he was no friend to fundamentalism. In fact, he, he was a staunch hate, he had a staunch hatred for fundamentalism. He was an avowed liberal. And he said, it is mistaken. It is a mistake often made by educated persons who happen to have but little knowledge of historical theology to suppose that fundamentalism is a new and strange form of thought. How many were there, for instance, in Christian churches of the 18th century who doubted the infallible inspiration of scriptures? A few, perhaps, but very few. No, the fundamentalist may be wrong. I think he is. But it is we who have departed from the tradition, not he. The Bible and the corpus theologicum, or the, the body of theology of the church, is on the fundamentalist side. That's what Cursop Lake said. Let me go back here. I'm sorry. So we have, though, some epistemological concerns. <laughs> epistemological concerns. You say, well, what does that mean? If the Bible is not true and all that it communicates, then any assertion is done to, uh, it does communicate could be false. What am I saying? Epistemology is a word that designates how we arrive at truth. Epistemology is the study of truth. It's a, how do we know things? How do we gain knowledge? If a historical error is theorized, then the theological claim is suspect. What, we're, what I'm saying is what we've talked about previously, that is, if there is a theological claim in the Bible, but yet the historical part of it you can't, uh, you can't uh, uh, believe or you don't know to be true, then everything becomes suspect in the Bible. So we say, we, we say that the Bible, we know the Bible to be infallible. I'm going to go up for it here because we're going to then dive into something quite interesting. And that is when you say, well, the Bible is without error. The Bible is infallible. What does that really mean? And it can cause us to ask some questions because let's take, for example, when... Joshua says to the son, stand thou still. What does the Bible say after that? And the son stood still. So my question for you tonight, and we're going to kind of explore this for a second here, not too long, is, is that an error or is that true? And what do you do with it? There's a, pa a preacher a, uh, a former slave, Jasper was his name, and he preached a whole message called The Sun Do Move. 
<laughs> and it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was powerful. So what do we do? Well, I want to present to you an argument tonight for your consideration. When it comes to truth that the Bible is teaching, we're going to talk about two things, truth claims and precision or exactness. Well, what do I mean by that? So in his chapter on the inerrancy of Scripture and the doctrine of the Word of God, John Frame, an author, he offers some important distinctions and clarifications on the doctrine. Okay, on this doctrine of inerrancy, let me put a math problem on the board here, all right? This is going to be easy. Is that correct? <laughs> two plus two equals five. Is that true? How many of you are going to say, yeah, I believe that's true? Okay, good. This would be an, what we would, if I had a test and I answered it this way, would I be correct or in error? You, I would be in an error. Okay, good. All right, I need someone brave who would be willing to let me ask you how old they are. <laughs> how old are you? 62. 62. Tell me your first name. Richard. Richard. Okay, Richard. Richard is 62. Richard, have we negotiated this before class? No. Do you know anything I'm about to do? All right. I feel like I'm about ready to do a magic trick. All right. All right. Richard is 62. Richard, tell me, when is your birthday? 14th of March. Okay. 14th of March. Oh, yeah. There you go. So you're going to have a birthday here in a month or two, two months. All right. Wow. Why did you say you're 62 then? My birthday isn't until March. Then I turn 63. Right. Remember, okay. three months out of the year, I get to be younger than my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're always younger than your wife. <laughs> why, why did you not say, <laughs> why did you say 62? Because we have a cultural norm yes. that when you ask someone their age, they don't say, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm this many years, this many days, months, this many days, this many hours, and this many minutes, and this many seconds. Right, we, we do it. We, we egg it on. How old's your child? They're 32 months old. Um, why don't you just say that they're, I can't even do that math. <laughs> why don't you say they're two years old? Uh, you know, well, because I like to, when I turn 68 months, I just want everybody to know. No, we, we, we use those, we say that for a certain amount of time. We give the months, but then we get to a certain age where it's like, you know, you just revert back to your most recent birthday. Have you ever thought about that? You're really not 62. I, I don't want to break this to you. Almost this is going to be, you're, huh? Almost 63. You're, yeah, you're older than 62. <laughs> you are just trying to pull one over on us of how young you are. Uh, I've been plucking out all the gray hairs. <laughs> but because we have a cultural norm that no one would say, no, that's not how old you are. But we would say, hey, yeah, is this in truth or is this error? 
we would say, that's true. But it's not precise. This is not true. And we would say, wow, you did that on a test? You're wrong. So what's the difference between being precise about something and true? Let's say I say to you, hey, this is the book you have to read. And you say, oh, my goodness, how many pages is it? And I say, oh, it's, uh, it's about 600. And you look at that and say, 600-page book? I can't do that. No, I lied to you, actually. It's 614. But I did 600. Why? Because, well, who says it's 614? You better read exactly. Well, I don't even know. Are you going to read that page? You're probably not going to read that page. Actually, you probably will read that page and maybe not read that page. But we look at these and we say that about books and things all the time. We just give this general idea and we just say, hey, it's, we ballpark it. And we're not precise at all. Why do we do that? I do it with my children all the time. Dad, how much longer till we get there? 15 minutes. <laughs> or if we're going on a long trip, it's going to be out seven more hours. Just buckle up because it's going to be a while. Do I tell them precisely? Because I have no idea actually how long it's going to be. But I give them a of a roundabout and, and they're okay well they're not okay but they ask again 10 minutes later there's a relation the right <laughs> there's a relationship though between precision and error frame i mentioned his book let me say what he says is actually more it's frame says it's actually more complicated than many recognize what he asked this question what is an error Sounds like a simple question with an easy-to-find answer, but identifying an error requires some understanding of the linguistic context, and that in turn requires an understanding of the cultural context. He goes on to say, We should always remember that Scripture is, for the most part, ordinary language rather than technical language. Certainly it is not, one, it is not of the modern scientific genre. In Scripture, God intends to speak to everybody. To do that most efficiently, he, through the human writers, engages in all the shortcuts that we commonly use among ourselves to facilitate conversation. Imprecisions, metaphors, hyperbole, parables. Not all of these convey literal truth or truth with the precision expected in specialized contexts. But they all convey truth, and in the Bible there is no reason to charge them with error. He goes on to say this, Inerrancy therefore means that the Bible is true, not that it is maximally precise, to the extent that precision is necessary for truth. The Bible is sufficiently precise, but it does not always have the amount of precision that some readers demand of it. It is a level of precision sufficient for its own purposes, not the purposes for which some readers might employ it. So in reading the Bible, it is important to know enough about the language and culture of the people to know what claims the original characters and writers, writers were likely making. When Jesus tells parables, he does not always say explicitly that this, his words are parabolic, but his audience understood what he was doing. And we should as well. A parable does not claim historical accuracy, but it claims to set forth a significant truth by means of a likely non-historical narrative. So Frame says that we have 
definite to have to define inerrancy a little more precisely. He says that inerrant language makes good on its claims so that when we say that the Bible is inerrant, we mean that the Bible makes good on its claims. This means that inerrancy is compatible with unrefined grammar. There's people who misspoke in the Bible. The inerrancy is compatible with non-chronological narrative. You say, I read the Bible and this doesn't make sense because they say this happened and this happened and obviously there's a mistake, not if you understand the culture who it was being written to. There's round numbers. You look at some numbers in the Bible and you'll find that, wow, they were precisely 300,000. <laughs> but there may be round numbers, imprecise quotations, pre-scientific phenomenalistic descriptions, the sun rose. We know the sun doesn't move we move around it use of figures and symbols imprecise descriptions such as in mark 1 5 which says that everyone from judea and jerusalem went to hear john the baptist how literal do you want to be everyone went these are merely applications of the basic meaning of inerrancy that it's a search truth not precision it tells us what is true but it's not always completely precise. It's round. Inerrant language is language that makes good on its own claims, not on claims that are made for it by thoughtless readers. And there's a lot who would say, I can't trust the Bible because it's got contradictions. It'll say this king and that king. And, and I'll say, no, wait, is there an aspect of this that you might culturally not understand? That you might, in your Western mentality, be holding the Bible, not saying, oh, I don't need to hold it accountable, and I, but be saying, look, you're making claims on the Bible it doesn't even make claims on. I like frames distinctions between truth claims and preciseness or exactness. But there are three very broad perspectives of inerrancy we need to look at. And they are the non-errant, uh, let me go forward here. There we go. The non-inerrantists is the Bible's inspiration does not translate into an air-free transmission of God's word to his people. So we're going to look at three types. The non-inerrantist perspective, the limited inerrantist perspective, and the perspective of the full inerrantist. And so under theories of inerrancy, the first one is the non-inerrantist. The Bible's inspiration does not translate into an air-free transmission of God's word to his people. Those who hold this view allege that there are contradictions in the Bible and inconsistencies. Many of them do claim to be biblicists, but they claim that they are being true to the Bible we have, but it's not an inerrant Bible. So that's the first one. Then there's the limited inerrantists. They hold to the truth of Scripture, but do not understand that truth to e apply equally to all of the biblical statements. This was also the definition I gave you for those who hold to infallibility that say you can trust parts of the Bible, but not other parts. Trust the parts of the Bible that are about faith and practice, but don't trust the parts that are about history and science. We alluded to this before. This is the Bible. This is the Bible is an error in matters of faith and practice, but not history and science. There's a canon within the canon. Those who are limited inerrantists would be very comfortable saying the Bible contains the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God. It's not in its entirety. There's stuff in there that is not actually true. They're limited inerrantists. 
But then there's the full inerrantists. Where the Bible speaks, it speaks without error. This is the view of our church. This is my view because this is what I believe to be the biblical view. Still, there are those who reject outright any form of inerrancy. And their arguments are along, fall along the following lines. Now, I'm just going to go through these really quick. Those who say, I can't believe the Bible is inerrant. In fact, on, this, on the way to work this morning, I listened to a podcast where he went through his objections and why he could not, be, uh, uh, why he could not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And so they, they fall along these lines. When we do not have a copy of the inerrant original and the extant copies we have or the existing copies we have in our possession contain error. And uh, there's, no, there's no originals, and so what we have has error, so we can't claim inerrancy. Number two, assuming the objective truth of Scripture as God's self-revelation does not address the question of subjective appropriation, thus making inerrancy irrelevant. You say, what does that mean? If we're going to assume that there is objective truth in Scripture, and there is, this is what they're saying, I'll, I'll acknowledge there's either objective truth in Scripture, but what do you do about the still small voice of the Holy Spirit? What about the subjective appropriation? They'll say, inerrancy is irrelevant if you can take the Bible and say, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in this way. In other words, if he speaks differently to one person than to another, inerrancy is irrelevant. Because what if he says two different things? It's a problem. I don't agree with their premise, but if their premise is that the Holy Spirit can speak to you, then they say inerrancy is irrelevant. Number three, the Bible does not teach its own inerrancy. This is true. The Bible does not use the word inerrant. We saw the implications. We saw how it's implied, but you won't see that word. Number four, the idea of biblical inerrancy is a philosophical category artificially imposed upon the biblical materials that is alien to its nature and intent. That goes right along with number three. They say this is just a philosophy that's been developed. Another objective, uh, another objection, I should say, is biblical inerrancy demands either an infallible hermeneutic or a literal hermeneutic, both of which are problematic. What they're saying is if if you're going to have an infallible hermeneutic, in other words, when you interpret the Bible, you will make absolutely no error. We know what the Bible says. We have no disagreement. We know exactly what the Bible has to say. You can either have that or you could take it literally. You can either say the sun does move, take it literally, or you say, you know what? I know exactly what is meant when he said the sun moved. You can't have it both ways. Both have problems. Or, number six, inerrancy flows from the faulty understanding of revelation as text as opposed to original witness to revelation. I just went through those quickly, and, and, and we're not going to wrap our minds around the objections too much, but I want to give the responses or some responses to several of these objections. Don't get intimidated by these arguments against inerrancy. Part of the reasons they are intimidating, they're intimidating to me even, is because we have not yet actually defined our term inerrancy. 
We defined inspiration, but we talked a little about a bit about the difference between inerrancy and infallibility, and we said inerrancy is without error. We did say that, but we have really not come up with a good working definition. So in responding to these arguments, it does highlight some limitation these word, the word inerrancy has. Now, I want to give you three limitations. They're not in your notes, but if you want to write them down, there's three limitations to the actual word inerrancy that we use. I do think it's a limitation that, unlike inspiration, inerrancy is not taken directly from Scripture. We'll have to work through that. I think I gave you sufficient verses for self-witness of Scripture that say this implies inerrancy, but the Bible never makes a claim that it says what you're reading has no error. And so that's a limitation of this word inerrancy. We're using a word that's not in Scripture. I don't think it's a... It's not going to end all things that it's not in Scripture and, and it's not a deal breaker, but it is, we'll at least acknowledge it. But number two, the term implies mathematical preciseness. Inerrancy implies something that we got to make sure it doesn't actually imply. And this goes back to what I talked about between exactness or preciseness and truth claims. The term inerrancy implies mathematical preciseness. That's the argument Flame was making in defining inerrancy the way he did by differentiating between truth claims and preciseness. And then the third limitation of inerrancy, not only is it not in the scriptures, it implies mathematical preciseness, but inerrancy does not determine authority of scripture. And this is very important. When I hold up my Bible, I don't want to say this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, and because of that, it is my authority. Inerrancy does not determine authority of Scripture. Inerrancy is a product of authority. What do I mean by that? It is secondary to it. The Scriptures are not authoritative because they don't have an error in it. It has no error because it's authoritative. This is the authority. And we won't, what my point is, I don't open and say, hey, if I don't find any error in it, then I'll make it my authority. No. We go into it saying, this is spoken by God. It is authoritative. And because God said it, I can open it and there will be no error in it. Infallibility and inerrancy are secondary to authority. It is the Word of God. So once we understand the limitations of what we're talking about when we use the term inerrant, we are better situated to address some of these objections. For example, in the first objection, it was, we do not have a copy of the inerrant original, and the extant or the existing copies we have in our possession contain error. That's true. There are copies of the Bible that have errors in them. Could but we can counter with the fact that because we do not have the originals, you cannot prove to me that the originals had any errors in it. In other words, if the scriptures that were given were errant, show the errors in the original manuscripts. You can't because we don't have them. Other objections were addressed in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that I mentioned a few minutes ago. 
As to the objection that inerrancy flows from the faulty understanding of revelation as text as opposed to original witness to revelation, in other words, the revelation of the writers that they received was not necessarily a written communique. It was simply their witnessing event, an event. That objection is revelations that the writers received when they got it, they actually, that revelation wasn't something written. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. They were just observing something and then going back and writing about it. And the objection is that we have split those, but evangelicals have long insisted that you can't separate the event with what the event means. There's a connection between the event and what was written about the event. There's a connection between the event and what the writer said about the event. To separate these things leads to epistemological nihilism or skepticism. If you say, well, the event was the revelation and inerrancy, we're just going to have to depend on the author's perspective and it could have been wrong and it could have been skewed. Well, if we go down that road, what we get to is where we say, you know what? I have no idea what any of the events in the Bible mean. There's really no way to know. And so it's just nihilism. I'll just become so skeptical, it's impossible to come to any idea of truth. Finally, in regards to the objections, the objection that biblical inerrancy demands either an infallible hermeneutic, knowing precisely what the Bible means, or a literal hermeneutic, taking the Bible literally in every aspect, and both of which are problematic, is simply, it's unfounded. Inerrantists have found that once a biblical teaching has been identified, we can trust in that teaching without being afraid of it being false. We do not need to fear being duped or getting the wrong understanding. And then, let me give you three difficulties with the non-inerrantist position. It is difficult to reconcile with the Bible's statement about the nature of, ins- of its own inspiration. A, non-inter- a non-inerrantist would have its struggles with what the Bible says about itself. Even though it doesn't use that word inerrancy, I already mentioned the verses that says God cannot lie. I said it's given by inspiration. Those you can't reconcile with someone who denies out-and-out inerrancy. It even seems, another difficulty with the non-inerrantists is it seems alien to how Jesus used the Bible during his earthly ministry. It's evident that Jesus quoted Scripture because why? He believed it had no error. And it's inconsistent with church history. Let me just provide one last argument against the limited inerrantist view. Remember, the limited inerrantist said, you can trust the Bible on faith and practice, but you can't trust it for history and science. Let me give you one argument against that. In other words, well, the argument is, what what do you do, here's my question, what do you do then with the resurrection? Is the resurrection a matter of faith and practice? Yes, it is. We, we, if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable, right? So it is a matter of faith and practice. We would not have our faith without the resurrection. So the limited narrative says you can trust the Bible in matters of faith and practice, but not history and science. But let me ask you this question. Was the resurrection a historical event? 
It's both. It's a historical event. It happened in space and time, and it's a matter of faith and practice. That's why a limited inerrantist view is incoherent. It has to be extraordinarily intimidating to approach the Bible as a limited inerrantist, having the enormous task of separating fact from fiction. So let's go back to defining inerrancy for us. And do, to do this, we'll return to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy of 1978. Since the Chicago Statement is quite large, we're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to pull out David Dockery's concise statement. He summarized it like this. You'll see it on the screen. The, toward a definition of inerrancy, the idea that when all the facts are known, the Bible and its autographs, that is, the original documents, properly interpreted, interpreted in light of the culture and the means of communication that had developed by the time of its composition, is completely true in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author's purpose in all matter relating to God and his creation. There's several dynamics at play here. One. All the facts are known. Inerrancy depends on all the facts being known. In our finiteness at present, we simply do not possess all the information relevant to the Bible. We currently see through a glass darkly. But when it comes to inerrancy, you, you trust it because it's the authority. You could say it is the authority, it is the word of God, it is without error, and there actually might be things I don't know. All the facts are known. Number two, inerrancy has always referred to the original autographs. Just like inspiration that happened in the past at a specific time and place, so what was given by inspiration was inerrant. With that Inerrant. That statement, I hope I have made you uncomfortable. Why? Because I use that word in the original documents. The original documents are without error. Does that make you uneasy? Why? We don't have them. So if the only if it's without error in the original autographs, that is the original documents, and we don't have them, the logical question is then: Do we have an inerrant Bible? We're not going to stop and comfort you just yet on that. <laughs> For now, inerrancy belongs solely to the original documents. That's all we're going to leave it with: just the originals. Inerrancy should never be separated from the canons of sound biblical interpretation. Much of the seemingly difficulties we find in Scripture are nothing more than our failure to exercise sound principles of interpretation. That is, rarely, I might even say never, do we find a new revelation. There's canons of Scripture uh, that are out, uh, canons of, of writings out there that help us. Um, we can't separate it from the canons of sound scripture. And then, inerrancy is tied to authorial intent. Remember truth claims and preciseness, we must allow scripture to determine its own standards of precision according to the purpose of the author and the literary genre being used. Okay, so this is inerrancy. But, 
let's go back to this idea this that I about the original documents. I think we need to stop here and consider something very important. Admittedly, this discussion will leave you wanting and unfulfilled. We are not going to get it done in five minutes. That's okay. We're not going to, we don't have time to exhaust the topic. But let's pull up our church's constitution again. While you look at this, consider some other statements of faith out there. I'm going to read them. I'm not going to tell you the organizations, but if I did, they would be recognizable. I pulled these not out of some far-fetched, out-there uh, Christian organization and name. I'm talking people who have represented these organizations, these institutions in our pulpit. Here's some of their statements of faith. This one institution holds to the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible in the original manuscripts and that God has supernaturally preserved his inspired words in the totality of extant manuscript evidence. Okay? Another institution says, we believe that the Bible is the verbally inspired and infallible authoritative word of God and that God gave the words of Scripture by inspiration without error in the original autographs. Goes on to say, God promises that he will preserve his word. Jesus said, my word shall not pass away. We believe that God has kept that promise by preserving his infallible word in the traditional Hebrew and Greek manuscripts and that the authorized version is an accurate English translation of the preserved word of God. Here's another one. This organization believes in the scripture of the Old and New Testaments alone as verbally, plenarily inspired of God without error in the original writings and the sole authority of faith and practice. And one final one for you. This organization says the 66 books, this one, if I read it, I, I think you could guess who it is. The 66 books of the Bible are the unique written word of God. The Bible is divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, supremely authoritative, and sufficient in everything it teaches. Its assertions are factually true in all the original autographs. Its authority is not limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive things, but includes its assertions in such fields as history and science. That I, that maybe you don't get it, but that last one, they wanted to say, hey, it can teach us history and science. That's answers in Genesis. That's their statement of faith. That's the only one I'll tell you who they are. What did you notice about all those statements? And the original, original, autographs. original autographs, original. Do you notice ours doesn't say that? We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be verbally and inspired word of God. The Scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and God-breed, and therefore are the final authority for faith and life. Does inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility only apply then? My question is, does it only apply to the original manuscripts? Yes. Inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration only apply to the original manuscripts. But this is because I believe we have something else promised to us that allows us to hold up our Bible and say, I have the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God in English. And that's the doctrine of preservation. We look at our church constitution. 
We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the verbally and plenary inspired Word of God. The Scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and God-breathed, and therefore are the final authority for faith and life. He goes on to say the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the complete and divine revelation of God to man. I really, I'll, I'll just an aside here, I don't understand this sentence. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the complete revelation, are the complete and divine revelation is complete what is complete modifying revelation if it is there's we've talked about this in special and general revelation there's special revelation that we don't know about so it's complete for us and if that's i think what we're saying the 66 books are complete but this is not the end all of revelation to man at least i don't consider it so it's a, it's a confusing sentence to me. You might say, no, that's not confusing to me at all. But looking back, we don't mention in our statement of faith any mention of preservation. But also we don't align only those things, inerrancy, inspiration, and infallibility. We don't align them in our Constitution either to only the original writings. We don't have that. Why is it important we do not align those strictly to the original manuscripts? Why do you think we don't align it to only the manuscripts, only the originals? Because we need to be able to depend on what we actually have. Right. I don't necessarily disagree with the other statements of faith I read, but only two went on to say where that it was preserved. Said, hey, this is where it's inerrant, infallible, and inspired in the original manuscripts, but it is preserved for us. Now, I don't think you have to go so far, we're not going to go so far as to say, it's, in, it's preserved for us, and here is where it is. That's a whole different class. But for now, we don't want to just tie inspiration and fallibility and inerrancy strictly to the original autographs without leaving us something. And our statement of faith leaves us with something. It says that we believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the verbally inspired Word of God, and the Scriptures are inerrant. If I went on to read the last part, it would say where we believe it is. A number of verses are commonly set forth in systematic theologies and elsewhere to demonstrate a biblical doctrine of preservation. And doctrine of preservation is not taught very much. The doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of infallibility, all those things are taught, taught, taught. But preservation kind of says, well, if I go down the road of preservation, I have to back myself into a corner, not necessarily bad, but I have to back myself into it somewhere. Psalm 12, verse 67, though, says this, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 152, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Psalm 119, verse 160, The word is true from the beginning, and every one of the right, thy righteous judgments endureth 
forever. I could go on with verse after verse after verse that says the word of God will last forever. It will be preserved. Even those who believe in a biblical doctrine who believe in a biblical doctrine of preservation, though, they differ with one, each, one another on how directly or indirectly some of these verses contribute to that doctrine. Or even whether some of them teach preservation at all. At least some of these passages, nevertheless, really do seem to contribute to a biblical teaching, creating the expectation that God preserves his written word. I like Romans 10, verse 10 through 18. Why do I believe in preservation? It's a logical argument. You know the passage in Romans chapter 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now listen what he says. How then shall they call on him whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Verse 17, you know it. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here we see one of Paul's classical logical arguments. We have faith. Here's the argument he's saying. We have faith if and only if we hear the word of God. That's what he says. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You only have faith if you hear the word of God. We can only hear the word of God if it has been revealed to us. The entire world has had the word of God revealed to them. The entire world then has access to faith. In short, let me put it like this. I can summarize his argument. We have faith if and only if we hear the word of God. There are people of faith. Therefore, there is a word of God. People of true faith in our world today are proof of the existence of the word of God. You have faith. There must then be the word of God. Your very existence says God preserved his word. Your faithful existence, if I could say it like that. If we had no faith on this earth, we could say there is no word of God. But because there's people of faith, we can say, because the only way to come to faith is hearing the word of God, we know that there is faith, therefore there is the word of God. Now we mentioned last week that inspiration means that God breathed what he wanted to the authors of his choosing. So inspiration occurred in time and space. Because of the nature of this practical definition of inspiration occurring at a time and place, it implies that it is not continual. God is not inspiring in the sense of continuation here. And here is why I believe preservation began immediately. Now, here's the argument I'm going to make. And you need to see it in 2 Peter 1.21. What does it say? The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God. What does it say? Spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What is the mode of communication in 2 Peter? Holy men, uh, what did they do? They, they spoke. I've been guilty of it. 
people have been guilty of it and said, the word of God, they wrote it down. And I'm, they did. We know Moses did, right? We were even told he wrote it down. But we see that men were, they, they were moved, holy men of old, they spake as they were moved. Speak, this word means to talk, to utter, to preach, to say. It's verbal communication. There's no mention of writing here. This tells me that inspiration, stay with me here, inspiration ceased upon conclusion of the delivery of the message. What do I mean by that? When the writer got the message, when he was moved, he spake, inspiration ceased at that point. It's done. It's not continuing. It's not continuing. That's why over, if you go back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, 16, it says, all scripture is given. It's in the past. It was done. It's given by inspiration. There's a finiteness to it. It stopped at some point. So my question is, if we drew a timeline here and we say, okay, this is, this is time and this is when inspiration occurred. We have tended to look at this and say, oh, this whole, we have the inspired word of God, it's inspiration. No, inspiration occurred. We know not only that inspiration occurred, but because it came from God, it was inerrant. It's impossible to fail, so it's infallible. And we receive this inspired word of God at a place and time what has been happening since and that's preservation after he gave it immediately we go into preservation mode yes but here's the problem that i think we get sucked into we think preservation really is just the manuscripts and we 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 when they uh uh, when there was one that transcribed it to something else and then it was preserved and it was preserved and preserved. Here's what I want. I want to back you all the way up to this. And here, here just take this and, and chew on this. Let's say Isaiah used an amanuensis to write. What is that? Penman. A penman, a secretary. And as Isaiah says, write this down. God inspires Isaiah. By the time it leaves Isaiah's mouth, preservation has started. Preserving the inspiration. So as soon as Isaiah starts speaking to his secretary, preservation has started. Take Paul. Let's say Paul writes a letter, and he says, this letter is so good, I want a lot of people to read it. And so the inspiration comes, he writes the letter, and he decides to transcribe the letter. He's preserving it. Back preservation all the way up to immediately after inspiration occurs, preservation begins. And we have, God has been preserving his word for us since then. So why is this important? I don't have time to get into it. <laughs> we got to be done. But 
I'll say this. I have five guidelines for helping us understand preservation. One, inspiration occurred as an event in space and time. Once it ceased, preservation began and is the ongoing, the ongoing safekeeping, the guarding against corruption of the inspired text. So inspiration occurred at a space and time. Once it ceased, preservation is actually what is continuing. Number two, whether miraculous or providential, preservation is a faith-based view of God's ongoing protection of his word. This is why I have no problem when we say, well, where is it? I believe God miraculously preserved it and has divinely preserved it, or providentially, I should say, preserved it. And while he didn't inspire translators, I believe he worked through them to give us the word of God. Number three, what inspiration is to the author, preservation is to the transcriber, to the translator, and to the interpreter. What do I mean by those? Well, transcribing, translating, and interpreting are all part of preservation. What are those, what are the differences? So this is the letter alpha in Greek. To transcribe would be to say, okay, alpha equals alpha. I'm gonna write it from one, same Greek into Greek. Translation is to say, no, alpha is A. That is translation. Interpretation is alpha equals A equals the indefinite article. <laughs> what do I mean by that? We use that word and we say A. Well, this is, this is, this is transcribing. This is inter or translating. This is then telling us what something means. That's translation. All three are important. All three are, are vitally important to understanding the text. And because God is not bound, this is one that you might find, uh, I don't know if I agree, and I'm okay if you don't. But because God is not bound by language, grammar, or syntax, the preservation of his word transcends human language constraints. This is why I believe we can have, God can work through going from Greek into English and give me exactly what he wants me to have. He transcends the constraints of our own language. In our next lecture, we'll start getting into, well, how exactly was that done? But let me give you an example. Give me, what is the word... What is the proper word for, well, I'll write it up here. What are the differences between these words? I think it's right there. What, are the, what, are, what does this word mean? I've written the word music, right? Which one's right? They all are. Different yeah, in fact, this is the one in our Bible, our English Bible. This is our English language. This is Spanish. This is German. We become very arrogant in our English translation to say, the King James Bible is the only way to say it. 
I think it is the best way. But in Chuk, they don't say it like that. And they don't say it in Spain like that. And if we say the only way to have the inspired Word of God is through just the King James Bible, we've got hundreds of other languages that we have to deal with. This is why I think God transcends language. And He can tell us exactly what He wants us to know in the words He wants us to have it. Because we, I mean, I used an easy one. You get a little more difficult there. Hey, I don't have time to go through and finish on the authority of Scripture. But I think the doctrine of preservation, it does. It's going to bring up so many more questions. Like if it was preserved, where is it? Again, that's another course. But we must finish here tonight and we'll finish. I'm not going to go back through the rest of the course and talk about the authority of Scripture. You can actually just read through those notes and you'll see why the Bible is our final authority. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.